welcome to Interchange. I'm your host and producer, Doug Storm. Our show today is It's Now or Never, Lessons on Protest from Hong Kong. Our opening song is Right Now, the title track off of the 1965 album by jazz saxophonist Jackie McLean. It's Now or Never, episode producer Sean Milligan interviews two activists who spent time in Hong Kong during the height of the protests in the summer of this year. Our guests are only identified by their first names in the program that follows. It's a necessary precaution to ensure they can continue to travel to and from Hong Kong to report on the protests. Our show is a discussion of how millions of ordinary people are standing against the most powerful surveillance state on planet Earth. Facing eventual reunification with mainland China, the citizens of Hong Kong took to the streets in unprecedented numbers to assert their legal and political rights against encroachment by the Chinese Communist Party. A story that would have been in the realm of science fiction only a decade ago. Technology and human ingenuity merge in ever more complicated ways in Hong Kong, and we see the future tactics of both governments and resistance movements evolving before our eyes. Today's show is in two main parts. In part one, we explore the continual erosion of the one country, two systems constitutional principle that prompted this most recent and ongoing protest that began in June of 2019. What are the circumstances on the ground as the protests have evolved throughout the summer and into the fall? Protesters noting the failure of the 2014 umbrella movement tactics of occupying space have shifted to a tactic of mobility which they call Be Water, assembling and dispersing in ways that don't allow the state a clear target for violent suppression. And in part two, we focus on how the use of technologies like social media apps have both facilitated surveillance and provided a platform for resistance. And now, it's now or never. Lessons on protests from Hong Kong on Interchange on WFHB. Basically, what's been going on uh, for the last four months now uh, started at the beginning of June um, when there was an extradition bill that was introduced into the Legislative Council that would basically grant the Chinese Communist Party in mainland China uh, unprecedented controls over people living in Hong Kong. And this violates the treaty that's been in place since 1997, which guarantees uh one country, two systems, which gives Hong Kong a special political status. Um, and the protests really started getting big around June 9th, June 12th. Um, those days you see about 1.7 million, 2 million people on the streets. Um, and this energy keeps going up pretty much the entire summer and is now still going, although at quite a different pace. So that's just sort of a broad general introduction. I can give a little bit of background too from before this movement because this movement didn't come out of nowhere it's actually been building on the backs of previous movements that have happened in hong kong so like wes said hong kong 
used to be a British colony, but was handed over to China in 1997. And since then, the Chinese government is supposed to guarantee that the sort of like civil liberties that have been in place in Hong Kong since the 60s should be uh, kept intact. But that's actually not been the case since the 1997 handover. And there's basically been this sort of slow introduction of new pieces of legislation every few years to sort of gradually change it from one country, two systems to one country, 1.9 systems, one country, 1.8 systems, and so on. And so the idea is basically that right now, Hong Kong is in a position where in 2047, it will be handed back to China completely, and there will be no more one country, two systems. So the Chinese Communist Party is basically trying to introduce all this legislation into Hong Kong to make it so that Hong Kong will be completely incorporated into mainland China by 2047. And so over the last few years, you've seen a bunch of uh, increasingly bigger movements and I would say starting maybe in, in 2012, uh, there was a big push from Beijing to reform the education system in Hong Kong to make it so that, for instance, languages could be phased out in favor of Mandarin, this sort of thing, uh, the increase of like Chinese nationalism in the school systems. There was a huge student-led movement against this. Um, before that, there was the uh, Occupy uh, movement in, in Hong Kong. In 2014, there was the Umbrella Movement, um, which was basically a huge movement uh, with hundreds of thousands of people participating. Uh, to protesting its electoral reforms that were being pushed by Beijing. Uh, in 2015, there was a movement uh, to protect the sort of like street culture in Hong Kong against like increasingly repressive uh, measures by the government. So this has been building for a long time. I think that's part of what's so uh, interesting about what's happening in Hong Kong right now is that the movement is so big and it has this very strong emphasis on keeping the people united in their opposition to the Chinese Communist Party. But if you really look into it, there's like, all sorts of debates that are occurring about what the future of Hong Kong could look like. And some of those do sort of play off this sort of like sense of like an ethnic difference. Um, but that seems to have actually uh, sort of subsided, uh, especially with the events of the last like week or so, which we can get into later. But um, there's a, there's a, so many different perspectives that are happening right now in Hong Kong about how exactly to relate to mainland China and whether it's a political issue or, or like, like exactly what, but at the moment, the movement is grounded around five core demands, and <clears throat> it's hard to make any like generalizable claims about what the movement is, is, is fighting for beyond those five demands right now. The first demand and the demand that sort of sparked the movement uh, is the demand to completely, completely withdraw the extradition bill. Um, and that's, that's actually already, it's, it's not already happened, but it's in the process of being withdrawn. It took three months for the government to acquiesce on that, but they have now uh, decided to repeal uh, the extradition bill. So we'll see if they follow through on that. Uh, that's the first demand. <clears throat> um, the second demand is the uh, immediate release of all people that have been arrested from the movement. And that's a lot of people. That's uh, maybe, I would say, probably around 2,500 at the moment, uh, if not closer to 3,000 people. The third demand is the uh, establishment of an independent inquiry into the Hong Kong uh, police's system. And so that means like basically to create a sort of like independent uh, investigation that will uh, basically prosecute police for the like crazy acts of brutality um, that they have committed. Right. Yeah. It's interesting to see that it's um, in many ways parallel to issues that are happening in the United States. But uh, then, as you were mentioning, um, it seems like they have a fairly unprecedented level of uh, unity uh, across uh, all kinds of lines that seem to divide folks here in the United States. Totally. I was wondering if you if you guys have much of a sense of of what the difference is. Is it just because the the Chinese state is so uh, oppressive and frightening that everyone is sort of banding together, or are there other 
forces at play that, that help them to unify right now? I think that's definitely the case. And I think people generally want, uh, people are extremely afraid of the Chinese Communist Party because they see what's happening in mainland China. Uh, many people have like family, friends, loved ones there, spend a lot of time there, work there, cross the border all the time. And they don't want that sort of system to be in place, um, especially regarding like censorship or um, issues around like uh, detainment and disappearances, these sorts of things. And then I guess another thing that I would say about the unity of the protest is that the way in which the Hong Kong government has responded to the protests has really forced people to unite together, especially in the face of police brutality. Like this is probably the largest movement against police brutality in, in the world. Um, so just to, to, to finish out the demands, a lot of them are actually like specifically with regard, specifically in reference with regard to the sort of brutality from the police. The fourth demand is to retract the characterization of the protests as riots. And the reason for this is because when the protests first started happening, they were all peaceful protests, like extremely peaceful demonstrations with like millions of people, just ordinary citizens in the streets voicing their resistance to this uh, extradition bill. And they were like brutally responded to by police with tear gas and batons for no reason at all. Um, and so things sort of escalated from there. Um, and so I guess I would say the, the sort of like fifth demand, and, and this is a really important one, um, is the implementation of actual universal suffrage. And so what that means with respect to Hong Kong and, and, and China is that the way that the Hong Kong government is structured right now is such that you can, you can vote, but your vote doesn't really matter. The candidates are all decided by Beijing, uh, they have basically, you can vote between like one of three candidates, right? But those candidates are all decided by the Chinese Communist Party. They're pre-vetted. And then in the actual like legislative council, which is sort of like the parliament or Congress in Hong Kong, it's like half of the legislative council is elected for by the people. And the other half is elected for by, is basically appointed by like trade organizations. So like corporations or like mega corporations or, or, or what have you. And then when, with the actual people in the legislative council that are voted for directly by the public, by the citizens, uh, it's still the it's still the case that if you are critical of Beijing or the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you will be disqualified or imprisoned. And that's what exactly what happened after the Umbrella Movement in 2014. And that's a big part of why the movement is so united is because in 2014, in the Umbrella Movement, you had so many different people who are who are advocating such different positions. And they took this huge uh step in civil disobedience. It was basically occupy encampments were set up outside of the government district and then spread throughout the city um, with, you know, 100,000 people like sleeping outside in tents all across Hong Kong. Uh, but it didn't work. They didn't meet their demands. And so after that movement, people were like, OK, well, this didn't work. So we tried the civil disobedience thing. Let's try getting into office. So they elected six different uh, people from the movement who are these like big movement leaders and spokespeople. And they all got into office. But then they were all immediately disqualified and many of them were put into prison. Um, and so coming out of this movement and into this movement that we're in now, a lot of people have the perspective that, <clears throat> okay, we can't have all these different political parties trying to fight for these different positions. We can't have all these like different leaders trying to like exert their control over the movement. We have to let the movement be driven, uh, by the people in a leaderless fashion. One of my notes, uh, mentions, uh, the Hong Kong way, uh, which is, uh, they, they say no divisions, no denunciations and no betrayals. Uh, do, you, do you know how that developed exactly? Yeah, so there's a story um, uh, behind this uh, principle, which was on July 1st, one of the really big first days of the demonstration, which made it go into international news, I think, was when they stormed the Legislative Council building. Um, and so you have these dramatic uh, sort of images of people sort of smashing their way into this empty government building and uh, graffitiing the sort of official government symbols. Um, 
And that night, some people wanted to stay in the building, and then other people uh, thought it was better to leave because there's no sense in getting arrested um, and facing uh, the police who had already been like brutally attacking people. Um, so as a response, everybody decided that they were all going to leave together. Um, and they developed the slogan, we come together, we leave together. Um, and this became a sort of way for people to unite behind each other and always protect one another, regardless of differences of strategy or these kinds of things. Um, and so when people say like no denunciations, what they refer, they'll say things like also like, uh, Peaceful protesters and frontline protesters, which is the name they give to the people that are uh, fighting at the front of the protests, are one and the same thing. Uh, they're the hands and the feet of the movement. And so they recognize that what the movement needs is a, a large sort of consistent organization between both peaceful protesters, people at home, people on the streets, all kinds of different parts, components of the movement. <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Sean Milligan talks with two activists who spent time in Hong Kong during the height of the protests this summer. Coming up, the violent shadow arm of the government and a new protest strategy called Be Water. I've seen uh, this term, the triad, yeah. in some of the reporting, and I saw it in your article, and um, I'm not... I'm not super clear on on what the what the triad is, and so I'm sure our listeners won't be either. So maybe you could explain the triad. Triads are gangsters. Like if you imagine like the like mafia operating in Sicily, it's like it's actually a very similar structure. Um, so the triads are like a in in Cantonese people use the term underground society uh, to refer to to the triads, and it sort of functions the same way. It's basically a system of sort of like close like familial ties operating in basically like all levels of like organized crime from like street level like drug dealing and prostitution up through like white collar crimes uh extortion and racketeering through insider trading uh up until you get to like levels of the government there's a lot of people in the hong kong legislative council that have ties to the triads uh it's, it's a really interesting structure because to, to my understanding it actually comes from the sort of like underground societies that were formed uh, at the uh, beginning of the end of the Qing dynasty to help to overthrow the dynasty. Uh, but those structures stayed around and transitioned from like a revolutionary structure to like a criminal structure. And so basically what ends up happening in, in Hong Kong is that you have all of these triads with very, triad organizations, uh, gangster mafia organizations with really close ties to very wealthy people in mainland China attached to the Chinese Communist Party. And so basically the way that, that works is that the Communist Party can pay triad organizations to do the dirty work that the police will not be able to do without sacrificing like all of their legitimacy, which is already so tenuous. So what that looks like in practice is there's there's so many different examples that we can say. But on July 21st, there was a that was a, a major attack by the triads against protesters. Maybe people have seen it because the images went pretty viral. But there was a demonstration on sort of the outskirts of Hong Kong City close to the new territories, which is a bit more like rural, like village where triads are very organized. And so there was a protest there at a train station called Yulong, where over a hundred people in white t-shirts and masks who are triads basically attacked the demonstration with lead pipes and machetes. And it was very clear afterwards that this attack by the triads against the protesters was something that the police knew about and helped to facilitate and probably ordered by people in the legislative council who have 
close ties to triad organizations. It's basically like the shadow arm of, of the government in the context of the protests right now. The the other thing that I found incredibly fascinating to watch is is uh, all the other tactics, um, such as be water. And uh, the way that they've used the uh, public transportation system and things like that. I don't know if you uh, want to take a minute and explain sure, that. Sure, that makes sense. Um, so the Be Water strategy is something that comes as a result of the failures of the Umbrella Movement in 2014, which James talked about. And basically the main strategy there was, as we've seen many times in U.S. protest movements, to occupy and sort of try to take over some sort of public space, like a square or a park or something like this. And ultimately, people realized that this tactic was ineffective since they didn't win any of their demands uh, from the Umbrella Movement. And so they decided that what made more sense was rather than to try to occupy space was to continually be mobile. And basically, the strategy is, I think, pretty simple. What happens is there'll be sort of a main protest or like during the day, there'll be a march with hundreds of thousands of people. And then as the march moves, it doesn't attempt to engage in battles with the police or confrontations necessarily, but rather to stay mobile and continually make the police chase after them. And this leads them to have a ability to disrupt many different parts of the city during one protest. So you imagine like there's a big demonstration with tens of thousands of people. Everybody gets on the train, goes to another district. They start running around in that district and blocking roads with traffic cones or barricades. And then they go to another district. And by the time the cops are even just being called, they're already gone and out of their way. And so they're always one step ahead of the police, always outmaneuvering the police, always ahead of their attacks, rather than waiting in an occupied place for the police to come and sort of arrest people or things like that. And so a lot of it is to avoid getting arrested as well. And there's also like a sort of philosophical level to it as well. There's being water in the sense of protests in the streets, but there's also the sort of larger sense of people have to remain adaptable. They have to be able to, to shift to different positions. They have to be able to look back at the techniques that worked and the techniques that they didn't, and figure out what they wanted to do and whether or not they need to change. It's like all about being spontaneous and being unpredictable and being able to be like highly, highly adaptive to the situation as it evolves. And a lot of that requires speed. And that is the perhaps one of the most impressive things about the movement there is how quickly people are able to synchronize in real time, whether that's through communication channels, whether that's through hand gestures, whether that's through their encrypted apps like Telegram. Um, people are highly advanced at communicating at a high speed, and this really gives them an advantage over the police. They had actually shut down many of the transit train routes because the demonstrators were using them. Is that still going on, or have they had to open those back up because of the rest of the public needing it? So this is something that's uh, been happening for a while now. It's been one of the main sites of tension in the movement for the last several months has been the railway itself. The, the railway in Hong Kong is called MTR. And Hong Kong is an incredibly dense city. If you imagine like New York City, but a little bit smaller geographically or a lot smaller geographically. I mean, so basically everybody in the city depends on the metro. Um, but as we were talking about earlier in June, on June 21st, there was a sort of triad attack in the metro station where the cops refused to or like took extra long time to arrive at the metro station to ensure the safety of people. And so around that time, people started to feel that a, the MTR wasn't safe, that the police were not going to protect them if they were attacked on the trains, and B, that the state could also use the trains for the police as well. And gradually over the next couple of months, the battle with the MTR grew more and more intense. And like you said, eventually they started cutting the stations where the protests were set to happen so that people would have to walk far distances or 
At the end of protests, people were stranded in dangerous areas and couldn't get out because the trains weren't there. And this all kind of reached a peak on August 31st, which was an incident where police sort of very, very flagrantly attacked passengers on a move train at Prince Edward Station, which is in a neighborhood called Mungkok. And they savagely beat all of these young protesters and also just citizens, not, not all of them were protesters, uh, including a medic. And then they totally locked down the station. And some people have disappeared since that night and are rumored to have been killed by police. Other people were very, like one 15-year-old boy was beat unconscious and nobody knows what has happened to him. The police controlled all the information about this case. And so again, this is the night, August 31st, where everyone realizes that the MTR is part of as what, the, what they would call the, the national pacifying machine of the Chinese Communist Party. And they realize it's an enemy and they can't use it even though they need it for their be water strategy, which requires them to transport, you know, thousands of people from one district to another in minutes. And so it's kind of a contradiction in the movement, which is, A, they really need the MTR. Everyone needs the MTR to get around. But at the same time, the state is using it to work against them. The state is giving favor to the police to use the trains. And so it's really not their territory. And so this is part of why you'll see it over the course of the movement. And what it's transitioning into now is less these big spectacular demonstrations with two million or more people in the streets all in the same locations, like in the government districts or financial districts, and transitioning into more like uh, diffuse, spontaneous flash mob type protests all throughout the city. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Sean Milligan talks with two activists who spent time in Hong Kong during the height of the protests this summer. We return with more discussion about protest tactics and the use of chat programs to coordinate them. I also uh, came across the term school bus. Um, yeah, which I, yeah, which I gathered was a was a response to that as well. Once once it was exactly. realized, right? Yeah. yeah. So that actually comes from when we were talking about the triad attacks in the in the train station Yudlong on uh, July twenty first. So what happened was, and why it was so controversial, aside from the crazy amount of brutal violence enacted against mostly peaceful protesters, was that the city had had basically shut down the trains, so that people were stuck in the train station. And they were being attacked by triads who were in the train station. They couldn't get out of the train station because it was like surrounded by police who were watching the triads beat the protesters. And then they couldn't get on the trains to leave because the trains had been shut down. So they were in an extremely scary situation. And so what ended up happening is people who weren't at the protest were watching it happen on live streams or through social media. And so basically people all throughout the city who were supportive of the protesters, maybe not people who had been directly involved in protests before, saw this happening and they were like, oh, this is so scary. This is horrible. We have to get these people out of there. They can't take the trains. So people started to spontaneously coordinate these massive channels on a on a chat platform called uh, Telegram, tens and tens of thousands of people on them to basically, if anybody has a car, take your car to Yunlong right now and pick up these protesters. And so they called it the school bus or like uh, picking up the kids from school is sort of like how it was built because it's like the kids can't take the trains home safely. So people have to go get oftentimes like literally their children go pick them up from these protest situations. From that point, it sort of evolved and it became a sort of general strategy. And it's a, it's a good way for people that aren't either able or willing or for whatever reason can't be like at the front lines of the protest, but still support it to, to actually show their support in a real meaningful way. Again, you see here how important and how cherished like every part of the movement is. And that's part of what goes into building this really popular unity is that basically, regardless of one's capacity, 
it seemed that the Hong Kong way or the specific way of living that Hong Kong people identify with is inclusive and appreciates all of the kind of people that are sympathetic and supporters of the movement. And this is something that's allowed the movement to gain mass, mass support is by basically giving concrete ways for people who want to get involved to help out immediately in a very practical way that makes sense. It's just like anybody, anybody who has a car can help out. And so thousands and thousands of people line up, get in their cars and try to pick people up from situations in which the police are searching people, attacking people. There's gangsters out beating people. Um, and so these people are really saving lives. Yeah. Um, maybe if, if you don't mind, something that we haven't talked a lot about is the Lenin walls. Yes, yes, I um, wanted to get to those. That's, uh, that's a, another fascinating piece of technology. The Lenin walls, they come from basically Prague in the 1960s, in the 1967, I think. Okay, so my understanding of the story is that they, they basically like banned the Beatles, and they were super popular, like everyone was really into them. And so as a response, citizens basically started to take post-it notes or make posters or art or whatever, just put paper on the walls in, in these like really central locations in the plazas, putting up John Lennon like quotes, this sort of like paraphernalia as a sort of like lighthearted act of civil disobedience or protest. And then the government really cracked down on them and people really stepped up at their resistance to it and it proliferated throughout the city. And so this is the tactic that, uh, one tactic that people are using in Hong Kong really effectively. And it's interesting because, you know, Hong Kong is a, is a situation where people are fighting against a communist government. And so they're taking a lot of inspiration from especially the, the breakup and the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. and different protest methods that were employed throughout that process. And this is one of those those methods. And it's a really wonderful method because it really, it's actually really beautiful. Like if you are at a train station and there's a linen wall there, it's like everything around you is covered in uh, graffiti and posters and beautiful propaganda in really detailed infographics. You can walk through a linen wall and see the entire history of the movement, every flyer for every demonstration, multiple flyers for every demonstration, um, day by day histories of the movement infographics depicting like specific police officers or like specific acts of police brutality or specific acts of like heroism or bravery from people in the movement. Uh, it's like really a celebration of, of the movement. And these linen walls are, are, are basically all over the city. Uh, they're outside of train stations or they're outside of public housing complexes. And they're, they're points of, of gathering for people. Uh, people can like meet other sympathetic people there. It's getting dangerous now. Um, just this week there was a, a, a teenage uh, protester who was putting up posters at a linen wall who was stabbed um, by I don't know, either like gangsters or like police supporters. He's 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 okay, uh, but I mean, so you, yeah, you have to imagine. It seems like not that big of a deal. Like, right, people are posting information about the movement, and therefore, well, one of the things that it also helped does is spread information to elderly people who are maybe less familiar with the internet or don't know how to use their chat, like. Uh, utilize the internet as effectively as young people and so how do they keep up with the movement and it's like okay well people you know generate all this information in a really simple to understand form that you know everybody could understand and they post it where where everybody is walking um and this keeps many different people involved and it also just helps spread the message explain why protesters are doing what they're doing and it's a sort of way to also get around media control which is sort of uh, a really big theme of the movement as well 
Yeah, I remember reading that officially Hong Kong has freedom of the press and freedom of speech, just like the good old U.S. of A., but in reality, just like here, uh, there's gatekeeping, and uh, it's not nearly quite as free as advertised, I gather. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's a tough situation. I mean, part of it, to give like another example of the sort of way that triads are used in conjunction with like Beijing strategy or whatever, one of the biggest newspapers in Hong Kong, I think the biggest newspaper called Ming Pao, a few years ago, the chief editor published a piece that was super critical of Beijing policy and was beaten and stabbed uh, on his way to work. And so this has created this sort of situation in Hong Kong where there's like this, this really clear threat to the freedom of the press. And so you'll actually see like a lot of the journalists in Hong Kong are, are actually really supportive of the movement and really appreciated by the movement and play a sort of like critical role in in the way that the, the movement is able to uh, continue to exist. And that sort of puts like the journalists and the press uh, on the same side against this sort of suppression of freedom of the of, of the press. Um, and that's not true for all stations or all news channels. Some of them are definitely outlets for basically Chinese government propaganda. But that's definitely what's at stake, censorship and this sort of like freedom of information. One thing that's really interesting uh, about the movement is if you ask people, uh, you know, what are people on the mainland saying about this? Um, most people will tell you that in the mainland, people know almost nothing at all about what's going on. And that's really shocking. Yeah. If you imagine Hong Kong has 7 million people, uh, there's been demonstrations with more than 2 million people that have been going on for four months. You can imagine that most people in Hong Kong have been on the streets at these protests or a good majority and people in the mainland, they don't hear a word about it. And that's pretty significant, I think, that the movement is able to do so much to outmaneuver surveillance and control. But there's a big difficulty in getting information to mainland China, partly because of how strict the Chinese Communist Party is over controlling information. And that's exactly what people in Hong Kong don't want to have happen to their home. Of course. Um, they, they want all these things like freedom to use the Internet, uh, in a minimally open way. In China, that's not the case. They have the Great Firewall where the state owns the internet directly. A lot of people, especially in the West, might not realize, but it's kind of create like the level of technological advancement in China is like totally insane, especially compared to like coming from an American perspective. We're raised with this sort of like sense that like America, we have the most advanced technology in the world or whatever. It's actually not true necessarily. And specifically, like what makes China a bit different is because the way that the capitalist economy is structured there, like through this like communist government or whatever, is that you end up in situations where you have, you know, companies like Alibaba or Tencent, which are huge Chinese tech companies, the equivalents of like Amazon or Facebook or Google are owned like like 51 percent of their shares are owned by the Chinese Communist Party directly. So it basically means that all of these new technologies are able to be uh, integrated into this like one basically strategy or centralized administrative power that's able to roll out these technologies to be used in the public sphere like immediately in this really concentrated way. And that's part of what makes it so difficult for people to get information from Hong Kong into mainland China because you have to navigate around all this. But people don't realize, I think a lot in the West, like how much that also impacts what sort of technology we have access to. Like, this is why I think it's been such a big deal, the ongoing scandals that have happened in the last few weeks with the NBA or with Blizzard, because it's like actually a lot of American or, or companies that, that we use a lot for our media and entertainment in the West are also controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Reddit, it's kind of crazy. Wow. TikTok, Grinder, Fortnite. All these companies have significant amounts of their like ownership shares based in Beijing. It's time for a break. This is B. Water from Kendrick Scott off of the 2013 album Conviction. 
More on the lessons we should be learning from the Hong Kong protests when Interchange returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB for part two of It's Now or Never, Lessons on Protests from Hong Kong. Producer Sean Milligan begins with the Sesame Credit System, which one of our guests calls an intense modulation of people's consciousness and appears strikingly like a future imagined by Philip K. Dick in the 1950s. Through social media companies like TikTok, the Chinese Communist government deepens its capacity to apply facial recognition software to identify, track, and suppress all aspects of human social activity. The Sesame Credit system that they have in mainland China, is that in play in, in Hong Kong as well, or is that they've been able to avoid that so far? No, that's what they keep, that's what they keep threatening. So for people that are, are maybe less familiar with the Sesame Credit system, what it is, it's a sort of score that is generated based on combining data from your social media, based on your consumer choices, your friends, your job, your credit score, and any sort of legal trouble you may encounter. So each person gets a score. Based on your score, you may be allowed to enter certain universities. You may be allowed to fly with certain airlines. Um, and if your score is bad, you may, for example, be prohibited from traveling altogether. And so it's a sort of way of drawing almost like cast lines throughout all of society. And it really prevents people from having social mobility because their decisions are, you know, deemed by this basically social credit agency to be unreliable, untrustworthy. And this is the main thing that the Chinese Communist Party is always stressing through its emphasis on control is that what it's really about is about, you know, trust. And so it's really interesting to see how the state basically tries to offer people incentives for behaving like model citizens uh, in this way that essentially makes them, you know, in the classical bad American stereotype of communism, where they're trying to make everybody brainwash everybody into the same person, uh, into believing the same thing. That's that's literally what the Chinese Communist Party is doing. And so it's an intense modulation of people's consciousness that 
is basically what this app is trying to do. It's really scary because like we were saying with the sort of integration of all these different tech companies into the government strategy, it's like imagine you have an app and that app is your Facebook, that app is your bank account, that app is your bus pass, like all these sort of things. Um, it's attached to your social credit score. It's attached to all your biometrics, like your like facial recognition, all this sort of stuff that makes it so that you can walk into you know a convenience store, buy something, pay for it by not taking out your wallet or anything like that, but just having your face be scanned. And then automatically having that uh, your items be deducted from your from your bank account and then all of that factoring at some point into your social credit score. Like it's a really, really integrated way of basically controlling people's behavior. And this is sort of thing is 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 being rolled out across China. And the idea with the Chinese government's uh, basically they have this like huge expansionist project right now, which is called the Silk Road or the Belt and Road Initiative, basically to provide all this sort of money and infrastructure for countries throughout Africa, the Middle East, parts of Europe, um, Asia, to basically like build all the like high-speed railways and ports, like this sort of thing, to give all this stimulus money and infrastructure to these places, and then in turn have these places be incorporated into this sort of credit system. And it's like the major way that the Chinese government is attempting to expand its sphere of influence. Yes, I've, I've followed that a little bit. It appears that they're uh, engaged in a bit of neocolonialism, but with, with a new digital spin on it. It's at like a really unprecedented level, too. I mean, this is probably one of the biggest like infrastructural projects in world history. Mm. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's interesting if you really try to think about what they're doing is the places they're building this infrastructure is places where geopolitically it's highly unstable, especially if you think about Central Asia. Uh, all these regions that have sort of only had independence since the fall of the Soviet Union or where the statehood has been contested for a long time. This is the, these are the places that China is actually trying to figure out before it even can take over those regions, how can it control the population and how can it, uh, you know, make a mold for the population to fit in before it even actually legally takes over those countries? Mm. Um, and so this this includes things like imagine you uh, live in Nigeria and you're riding this train that is built by the Chinese Communist Party. Well, the catch is in order to buy tickets to the train, you have to have WeChat, which is a, a government facial recognition app, basically, that's branded as social media. Um, and so it's really a way of, like, you know, implementing their model of government in places where the Chinese Communist Party isn't actually in the government at all um, through infrastructure projects, through social media and spyware, um, through things like that. And that is really something worth paying attention to. And you can already see that happening in America too. Like TikTok is essentially this. Mm. You say TikTok is is very similar in that in that regard. Uh, it's an interesting one because it's developed by companies that are controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. And so if you if you look up, for instance, like Hong Kong protests on TikTok, you're not going to find anything because it's all completely censored. Wow. <clears throat> but at the same time, like what these apps do. Is basically work to build up the facial recognition library of the Chinese Communist Party. Right, and, and gather lots of other metadata on, on all the users, too, I would assume. Right, exactly. And that's what I think that's part of what's so inspiring about the protests in Hong Kong is that you have people that are protesting basically the most advanced surveillance state in the world. And so the sort of like ways in which they're coming up and inventing new protest methods and techniques to combat uh, this advanced surveillance state. These are the methods that we're going to be using all throughout the world as these technologies become rolled out in America because every or any other country, because every country in the world right now is looking towards the Chinese government for ideas and techniques and strategies for controlling their populations through these advanced technologies. 
Yeah, and Hong Kong is at the forefront of uh, finding ways around all this stuff. And uh, it's it's like a science fiction novel. Like, I couldn't have predicted. Uh, you know, I've seen the, the photographs of uh, laser beams cutting through tear gas. And uh, and the term magic is another one I wanted to uh, make sure and hit in, in this interview. And I guess the, uh, the folks who operate lasers during these... Uh, clashes or demonstrations are, are known as light mages is that correct yeah yep. light mages fire mages there's all sorts of things um, basically people people talk about using magic as a way to i think sort of take away some of the stigma that is really built up around um that people i think in the west have really fetishized especially about like you know uh certain tactics being unacceptable in protests while other while other tactics like um, that would normally be considered more nonviolent are the only acceptable methods. And so by what is really interesting in Hong Kong is the movement makes sure to emphasize the bravery and courage of the frontliners, mm -hmm. of the people using fire magic, of the people using light magic, um, and in a way like demanding that these people be respected and treated as an essential part of the movement, just like all the other people helping out in all the different ways. And so the, the lasers, uh, the light magic, the thing about these is the, the blue ones, which are more high-powered than the green ones, will permanently disable uh, cameras if the lens is exposed. So you imagine there's a police camera trying to film. If it gets hit with a blue laser, it's, it's no longer going to be able to operate. If there's a drone flying overhead and it gets hit with a blue laser, it's no longer going to be able to work. Um, and then green ones are used to sort of prevent the police from advancing or getting too close because they can't charge if they can't see. Um, and so it's a way to give the protesters space to breathe and organize and not feel stressed out by the cops rushing at them. These highly trained tactical elite squads of police. It's also just fun. Like you'll see a lot of just like when in like downtime in a protest, there'll be like all the teenagers are just playing with their lasers. You know, it's like a, it's sort of like a morale thing. It's like really crazy. <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Sean Milligan talks with two activists who spent time in Hong Kong during the height of the protests this summer. We continue with the communication technologies being used to organize and coordinate real-time protest activities, such as Telegram and Like, L-I-H-K-G. You, you mentioned the, the encrypted apps like Telegram. Is that mostly for organizing activities or are they also um, sort of replacing the news media in, in some cases? I think it's a, a little bit more if we imagine like a, a mobile version of Facebook that is slightly more anonymous than Facebook is, uh -huh. that that's the sort of function uh, Telegram has. And I really think that actually people use it. Telegram actually, I don't know, if for people who haven't used the app, it has actually a lot of features which make it really amenable to big group discussions in ways that other apps that I've experienced, uh, I have experience with aren't necessarily useful for. Um, and so basically, yeah, like, uh, telegram channels can be used to provide information. They can be used to promote posters for upcoming events. They can be used to organize specific events. They can be used to give information about police activities and coordinate information from real time protesters with people online. So it sort of functions as both like yeah. news, um, organization. Um, and then there's another one that is really popular. It's not the only one, but uh, another form is called Like, L-I-H-K-G. 
And this is sort of a sort of the place where people can post longer reflections. Usually they're not too long. Usually people keep them around like a thousand words, two thousand words at the most. Um, but it's sort of a, a place where people can reflect on what's happening, air their frustrations, and talk about things that maybe they don't have necessarily a, a chance to talk about. And uh, and it's not a place to make decisions, which is interesting. It's just a place to sort of communicate and share messages and information. Um, but it's not like a place where people decide what kind of uh, future society they want to live in. Of course, people are talking about this, but it's not it's not the purpose of it. The Telegram is like especially useful for this. So, like, just as a as a as a platform, it's really easy to to embed media in in Telegram in a way that's like more secure than just sending it over like text message or Facebook or something like this. Yeah, um, it's really easy to forward uh, those types of, of uh, media messages throughout many different groups. It's really easy to create into uh, maintain coherent groups with tens of thousands of people or in some cases hundreds of thousands of people um so it's 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 extremely useful for getting out information quickly for sharing that information and for basically getting like live updates and and this is what used to be happening a lot in the protests in hong kong is everyone's on their phone all the time and they're getting updates on telegram about where are the police uh what equipment do they have what direction are they going in this sort of thing people are just constantly like taking pictures or video verifying uh those pictures or video and then sharing them massively wow and this is also true for protest techniques you'll, you'll see infographics about like you know what what's the best uh you know tear gas like gas mask or whatever and like these sorts of like images become infographics which become memes which become shared across telegram channels to hundreds of thousands of people wow i read a an account i believe it was in your piece about um how uh some of these kids will will go home after a protest and uh say that they had a dream uh you know while they were shopping yeah and, and that way they can sort of have a little bit of plausible deniability while re- recounting some of their uh experiences right people will i mean the the idea is that basically people would use vague language online turn themselves in for crimes that they didn't commit in order to basically shield whoever did it um from being caught or being suspicious so there's just they'll just flood the the message boards with yeah messages about how they dreamed of using fire or something yeah and it's kind of like a joke it's kind of cute right but it actually works has a specific function in terms of ensuring certain people's anonymity i was just gonna say it's important for these sorts of platforms to exist because something that makes the protests in Hong Kong, I think, a little bit different than protests that we might be or social movements that we might be more familiar with in Western contexts mm-hmm. is that a lot of people actually don't know each other. And so people are organizing like pretty anonymously through these online platforms like Telegram or like this forum that we've been speaking of uh, to, to do these like sort of like complicated like act like flash mobs or something like this. Yeah. Uh, but it's people that have never met each other. Out- so this is, this is like a, a big thing that people... People say all you'll hear people say all the time. It's like one day we'll be able to meet each other face to face without our masks on, and that's really true. Like people are organizing completely anonymously over the internet to carry out these huge, like huge protests. And so these forums are also a way for people to sort of like using this sort of like vague language of like dreaming or whatever to to like express themselves and to create this sort of like online community because it can be dangerous for people to reveal their like political positions in just like normal everyday society, like a lot of kids have been kicked out of their homes or like disowned by their families or a lot of families have been split up or a lot of workplaces might fire you or like this sort of thing. If you're like outspoken about your beliefs, you know, people who are older who are handing out food and water, there's like people who are, you know, like 13, 14 years old who are on the front lines of these protests, putting out, you know, tear gas canisters 
Right. And everybody's able to do this in a way where they can see themselves in everybody else and understand that they're all a part of the same movement and they're all working together. And I think this sort of mentality is something that uh, is, is what's giving the movement its strength. And I think that that's something that we really have to, to try and understand how that works uh, in the context of Western social movements where so often our movements become so divided on the basis of, of these tactics when it's actually – it's true. You have like the hands and the feet of the movement. And without those things, you don't have a body like you have to have like all of these elements working together uh, if you want to have something that's like successful and vibrant and healthy. And I think yeah. that that's so amazing to see play out in the streets of Hong Kong. Indeed. And and yeah, I, I hope that the, the rest of the world will uh, take note. I know that uh, history and states and the, the violence that uh, that is possible, it's uh, it's still it's still terrifying to be in their position, I'm sure. Yeah, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake and a lot of people are really terrified and there's a really strong feeling right now that, you know, the, the, there's a, a few like uh, sort of like big chants or slogans of the movement. And then the biggest one is uh, liberate Hong Kong, the revolution of our time. And the, and people really feel like this, like it's now or never, like if they don't complete this task now to sort of distance themselves from the Chinese Communist Party, it's going to be harder and harder and harder to do that in the future. There's going to be more repressive legislation. There's going to be more repressive technologies being used against people. And so that there's a real strong feeling that there's almost a sort of like doomsday scenario. Like, yeah, if we can't do this now, we'll never be able to do it. And that's part of what's motivating people to throw so much of their their and like people are quitting their jobs to, to, to be a part of the movement full time and leaving their homes and getting like apartments with other people in the movement to, to basically protest like full time right now. And so, I mean, we'll see what the future of the movement, like how that ends up playing out. But in a, in a moment like this, with all of these people from all these different backgrounds sharing these really intense and powerful moments of collective power, there's like there's no going back from that. Like even if the movement doesn't meet its demands, even if it fails, this experience will stay with people for the rest of their lives. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Sean Milligan talks with two activists who spent time in Hong Kong during the height of the protest this summer. We continue with the ways social media platforms allow protest tactics to be shared across cultures and continents in the fight against the two prevalent suppressive right-wing governments in power today. Uh, as we as we record, uh, there are multiple uh, hot spots sort of flaring up uh, all over the world. Uh, Chile, Haiti is uh, you know heating up, and it's really amazing to see like how tactics are being able to. To, to spread uh, and to be adapted to different contexts. Like something that I think is really interesting is actually on. Uh, so to talk about, to go back to like Telegram for a second, my understanding is that actually the biggest Telegram group in the world right now is the group in Catalonia. Oh yes. Um, yes. That's who I was forgetting. Yes. Protest there. Yeah. And so you'll see uh, a lot of times like memes or infographics from Hong Kong about like how to resist a water cannon or something like this that are in Cantonese being directly translated into Catalan to be used in the protests there. Wow. And so I think that's something that's like really inspiring about um, this sort of like way of organizing is that it's able to be like mimetic and to be able to be shared throughout all these different contexts. Because I think actually all, all these contexts have uh, more in common than they have differences. Obviously, they're very different contexts, but I mean, worldwide, we're like, there's a huge wave of uh, like increase in like you know, like authoritarian, like governments of new, like surveillance technologies, like repressive, like austerity measures. Uh, it seems very clear that like the sort of like neoliberal organization of the world is like kind of collapsing right now and that the world is like sort of searching for something to replace it with. And that could either be something like Donald Trump or Xi Jinping 
or or what have you, or it could be something that's like more grassroots, more democratic, more collective, uh, a, a completely different way of of approaching uh, these questions is, I think, emerging in these different contexts. And that's something that we have to pay attention to and to find the similarities between these places. Absolutely. And to help each other struggle. Yeah, and to and to experiment, as as uh, Hong Kong is demonstrating. I, I, there was a quote, uh, something like, uh, you can try anything as long as it hasn't already failed. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it seems in protest movements in the United States, uh, we're still stuck on the question of, of diversity of tactics, even as a, a basic principle. Yeah, that's what it seems. And it seems people are somehow waiting for something like Occupy Wall Street to happen again. And, you know, in... Like after coming back from Hong Kong, it's like, okay, well, like we tried that. Why, why don't we actually try to invent something totally new and different? And it seems people's imagination of what uh, an acceptable protest tactic is, is really limited by the fact that people actually don't believe that protest movements can accomplish anything except generate support for politicians. And what the movement in Hong Kong is showing us is that sustained uh, street presence can really make politicians listen to the movement rather than the other way around. So, you know, I really hope that people can, in the future, come together as a a much larger group of people in in America and people maybe fighting against its borders um, and try new things out, experiment and uh, see where that takes us and not get caught up on petty infighting and differences um, is really what we need to be doing. Absolutely. Yeah, I really hope that in the future, uh, people can be a little bit more in, like one of the main things that's really interesting is like, OK, if there's, there's protests in Hong Kong, it's not just people building barricades. It's architects who are saying this is the best way to build a barricade. Let me share this infographic of the best prototype of a barricade and the easiest one you can make. And that allows them to have all of this sort of advanced uh, sort of techniques of defense in the movement. And I hope that in the future, American movements can find some way to also involve engineers, say, hey, you have a job to do. Come tell us how to defend ourselves in the most effective way. And then those people will feel like they're called, that they're wanted in the movement. Hmm. Uh, And it will really give people to um, use a higher technical capacity than we're currently used to. Because right now, it's actually, if you think about it, most people can't go to protests only with signs in in America. Anything else, like you go with a mask, you're risking arrest. Right, right, in some places, for sure. And then, of course, the uh, prevalence of guns here in the United States uh, changes the dynamics. Yeah, I mean, ideally, there's there would be some way for people to use all of the technical knowledge that they have from working in different jobs, uh-huh. uh, contribute to something like a, a large-scale insurrection like we're seeing in Hong Kong. Indeed. I, I know uh, it seems the closest uh, we've, we've come may have been uh, Ferguson. Uh, that, yeah. that seems like that was a pretty large and sustained uh, sort of uh, mass uh, refusal of cooperation. Totally. We need that in every city. Yeah. I think that's one of the, 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 the biggest differences that the United States has as a political context compared to many other places, just the extreme amount of polarization that happens here. Mm-hmm. And especially when you factor in like guns into that equation, it's, it makes it a really difficult place to operate in. But just like so there's like Occupy Wall Street. And after that, you know, that, that sort of tactic spreads all over the world. Yeah. Um, and then you have these like big moments of upheaval in America, like 
you know, Ferguson and Black Lives Matter or Standing Rock, these sorts of these sorts of moments. And it seemed like the sort of like social uh, social movement momentum has sort of like died down recently uh, and not just in America, but across the world. But now with this sort of like wave of protest that's been happening, like you mentioned from, you know, like Hong Kong to Catalonia to Ecuador to, you know, right now, Chile or Lebanon. Like, I think that these movements are all inspiring and communicating with each other. And it's only a matter of time before they come back to America. And so now is the time for us to be getting prepared for when these social movements will will hit again, because you can never predict them when they happen. And that's the sort of thing that you hear people say a lot. You participate in these movements is, you know, before it kicked off, we had no idea that it would be like this. Now, all of a sudden, our lives are completely different. And the social context is completely different and the political climate is completely different, but nobody predicted it before it before it happened. And I think that that will that will continue to be the case, especially as the world is all these different countries are like searching for like new like political directions, <laughs> and especially also with the face of like, you know, climate change and like new forms of technology coming out like the world is rapidly changing and how that world will look like is, is completely up for grabs right now. And that's what these authoritarian leaders are fighting to control. And that's what the people of all these different countries and contexts are also fighting for is new ways of living. Uh, just to give like a, a sort of example like that, to go back to the, the, the thing we were talking about with the school buses and how they're coordinating to pick up protesters. Something really interesting that's happened in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is an island. Um, and it's it's hit often by uh, by typhoons. And so there is sort of an interesting development that happened with the, the sort of the school bus organizing to pick up the protesters is that same platform was then being used to pick up people who were stranded because of the typhoons or people who were couldn't get home for for whatever reason, because the typhoons had disrupted their 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 lives. That same platform was then mobilized to, to help coordinate um, like supplies and people to get picked up and this sort of thing two people that had been affected by the typhoons. And so thinking about how we can how we can use the ways in which we organize protests to go beyond that and to organize our lives, I think will be the direction that we need to go in the United States. We can have parallels with this mutual aid disaster relief stuff that's been happening uh, to sort of like model a different way of living that's a bit outside of this this the system that we're that we're that it feels like we're stuck in or trapped in. That's our show. We'll close with Friends and Neighbors by Ornette Coleman, recorded live in 1970. Thanks to our guests for insights into one of the most important movements against the current surveillance state order in the world. It's now or never to fight these oppressive governments as they grow more and more able to manage every facet of our daily existence. The message of strength offered as we create our future in these acts of resistance comes from those in Hong Kong who, obscuring their faces and organizing anonymously, say to each other, one day we'll be able to meet face to face without our masks on. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Sean Milligan produced today's episode. Jar Turner is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.